Couch Wisdom. Couch Wisdom. Hey, this is Todd Burns from Red Bull Music Academy. Welcome to Couch Wisdom, Red Bull Radio's podcast presenting the best of RBMA's lecture archive. Durban, South Africa, is one of the hottest scenes for dance music right now, and Black Coffee serves as its elder statesman. The 40-year-old first appeared at the Academy as one of two South African participants at the 2003 Red Bull Music Academy in Cape Town. His style of Afrocentric house is, in his words, homebrewed but future-focused. Coffee discussed the early club sounds of South Africa, told an incredible story about the day Nelson Mandela was released, and much more in his lecture at the 2016 Red Bull Music Academy. If you want to learn more about the Academy, please stay tuned after the lecture. For now, enjoy this bit of Couch Wisdom. Please help me welcome Black Coffee. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, so is it quite weird being on this side of the room? Much. Um, um, but I, I think it's such a good story, um, not just for me, but for what Red Bull is doing. Um, I think even for them taking that leap, going to South Africa 13 years ago, uh, um, it was a big thing, I guess, because everyone is going there now. And they went there 13 years ago. And, you know, to be here 13 years later, sitting on this side is, is quite an amazing story. Yeah. You almost seem surprised that they would go to Cape Town. Like, why, why would that be a big deal for you? Um, because the whole house music wave, um, the world has only woken up to it now. You know, um, not just house, just how musical South Africa as a country is. Everyone just woken up to it now. And um, it just shows how ahead they are, you know, um, of, of everything they do in the culture. So it, it, it is kind of special that they saw it quite early before everyone else. Ahead of the curve kind of vibe. Yeah, yeah. Definitely. So you came, uh, you went to the academy in, in Cape Town, but you didn't really have to go that far to come to the academy, did you? How, um, where exactly are you from in South Africa? Um, I was born in, in Durban. Um, it's a um, five hour journey from Johannesburg. Um, but I grew up, we moved when I was eight. Uh, I call it a village. You know, it's better now, but then that's what it, it looked like. Uh, in a place called the Eastern Cape, um, I was raised by my grandmother. Um, I, I literally grew up milking cows. Um, that's why I call it a village, even though not everyone had cows, but my grandmother did. And um, so that was my childhood. You know, I grew up quite a very hardworking, responsible kid. Yeah. You described where you're from as a village. Uh, could you describe what the village was like? Because I know South Africa has a long history of this kind of urban planning and how it involves race and place. Uh, could you describe like, where you're from and what kind of role that had for you growing up? Um, Durban is um, quite a, it's a township um, which was in South Africa. And the Eastern Cape at the time was an independent state. So it was not under the South African government. The government that is known for 
the apartheid regime. So it was a, a free state. Um, everything was slow. Um, I grew up in a house with electricity and um, like a normal house with clean water, um, indoor bathroom and moved to the Eastern Cape where it was none. Um, you make fire if you want to cook. You make fire if you want to take a bath. Um, the toilet is outside and it's a packet system toilet. You know, um, like I said, there was cows. I literally had to every morning and every afternoon go. Um, and, and, and on holidays, I, I used to be a shepherd boy, literally look after cows. And so for me, it was quite a different uh, lifestyle from what I was used to. Um, hence the village word, you know, as much as it was um, a township, so to say, because there were villages around, but my lifestyle, my home, uh, that was the setup. Why are there townships in South Africa? Like, what was their purpose, as it were? Um, the apartheid government created townships for black people um, to move them out of the city. Uh, to push them as far away as possible from where they, they were living. And um, they created a system that really worked for them. Um, so if you work for a, a white person in South Africa, you wouldn't live with them. You would live in a township and then you would travel. And they made sure that the township was as far away as possible uh, from where they were staying to avoid theft or any kind of uprising, you know, they would have time to protect themselves if anything came up. So, so a townships were a structure. They they literally moved people out of places that were closer to their to where they lived, and created all these townships, uh, identical houses, created schools uh, for the black people to go to, and moved them as far away as possible from. Um, Wall Street, you know, um, but it went far because this is the only thing black people knew. You are born in the township and everything around you is, um, there's nothing that is um, inspiring. You know, everyone is on the same level. Everyone is working for a master. Um, it's either your, your, your grandfather or your father works in a mine and your mother is a domestic worker and no one aspires to be anything else, you know. Um, um, so everything in the township was meant for the township. They created certain brands for black people that were cheaper, um, clothing lines that were cheaper, food that was not so healthy but cheaper, you know. It's a system they created for, for the black people. They even had a, um, a brand of beer that's particular to townships. And I was, um, when I was reading about your life, there was something that really struck me because uh, it's so beyond my understanding of the world. And they had, um, they have like a slogan on the side of, of the beer can. Can you tell us what that was and, and how, <laughs> how it might have made you feel to see, to see and read that? Um, they had different brands actually um, and well packaged, you know, and on the side it, uh, it was written, do not drink and walk. Um, 
it's basically it was meant for the people with a low income, uh, people who didn't drive and today do not drink and drive. And, you know, this was, even the name was an African name, even though it was not made by a black person. It was a, uh, a very toxic beer, like like in, in cartoons, and you, you finish that carton, it finishes you. You know, um, very toxic, um, traditional, because we grew up knowing that it's a traditional beer, but it, in reality it was never traditional because it is not really um, our tradition to drink that. So, uh, But it was created in that manner that this is your beer. You know, you work here, you live here, you drink this. And th that's, that's the circle. You grow up in that environment where even the people that you kind of like look up to are drinking this and they are wearing this kind of clothes and it becomes a system that captures you and you see nothing beyond and all you want to do, all you want to emulate is what you see in front of you and you grow up in this environment and you become comfortable in it. And our biggest struggle till today is getting out of that system. You know, it is the most... Um, imprisoning system to be in because it's not just about walking out of it. People get comfortable to a point where they love it and even when they do make it in life, they will spend most of their days living in the township, going to hang out the same way people before them did and eventually they end up back in the township because it, it's such a toxic place. Is this the benefit of hindsight from having travelled other places or were you quite aware of this when you were younger? I was quite aware of it. Um, it's, yeah, it's quite weird. From an early age, I remember I mentioned earlier how I used to look after the cars when I, I was in school and holidays and I used to just sit there like the whole day and imagine this life uh, um, traveling overseas, probably in, yeah, not even knowing how to pronounce this place. And I had all these visions and dreams of wanting a better life, you know, uh, wanting to do something greater with my life, wanting to get out of that system, wanting to, um, um, to be the best, you know, um, because it's such a rural area, area. It's that place where you clearly see stars, you know. And if I saw a shooting star, I would speak and say, "I, I want to be the best in whatever that I choose to be." Like literally, I would say that as a kid. And so it's a place I wanted to get out of um, at a very early age. It has always been, you know, my dream. Like one day, I need to leave this place, and I, I need to get my family out of it. Yeah. Um, apartheid in South Africa officially ended in 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 nineteen ninety four. Really, it was like between ninety one and ninety four was like the period of transition. It was like illegally ended in ninety one, and then non white people were allowed to vote in elections in nineteen ninety four. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. Um, in this system, uh, how how did you become a young man being aware of this system? What sort of feelings did you have, like growing up in something where you felt so unwelcome? Um, so growing up in the <clears throat> in the Eastern Cape, which was an, an independent state, as I mentioned, helped a lot because there there was 
no segregation. There was no black, no white. We didn't have um, superior white people telling us what to do. It was literally run by a black prime minister. All the business people were black. Everything was different. But Durban being my home, every holiday I would go to Durban. And half the time when I get there on holidays, all my cousins and my friends were not home because there was this state of emergency where police were just taking all the teenagers, you know, um, and they would come at random hours, you know, um, maybe 12, 1 o'clock at night, they just start knocking at doors and find you sleeping, and they, they were arresting all the, the black kids, basically, the boys, mostly. And <clears throat> that's when I was aware. It, it never affected me direct because I, I was there on holiday, but that was the system we were living in. And I never really experienced any kind of direct apartheid myself until I was older. Right. And until you're saying um, um, it stopped, you know, in 94, but maybe in like 2000, that's when I experienced it. You know, but before, I, because of where I grew up, I grew up in a different place where uh, I was colorblind. You know, but every time I would go to Durban, there was that fear. You know, there was that fear of, of police. There was a, the fear of uh, a white person. You know, um, even today, if you were to sit an, an older gentleman, a black gentleman, and a white person on on a table for dinner, right. you, you'd be shocked at, shocked at the interaction you know, they would have, because it's still there. You know, the, the, the older men are so afraid, you know, of, of, of the white people. They, they see them as their bosses and vice versa. The other one is more superior. They talk to them in a certain way. Only our generation and the ones after see things differently, you know. But the depth of it is that it has affected a lot of us because we, like telling my grandmother I want to be a DJ one day and traveling the world is like a joke. Like, that's not possible. Because she, she is not a driven person based on her past. Yeah, no one is really um, that ambitious because all they know is, listen, you need to be respectful you need to uh, listen to your master, basically, you know, and that's, you, that's if you want to become the best in what you do. Those are the two things you need to master, basically. You know, no one tells you, go out there and seek something else and, you know, chase a different dream. And so it has affected the way us interact with the world, interact with our women, interact with our kids, because the... There was no warmth from our fathers and our grandfathers. You know, we don't know the sense of family. We don't know it. It's something um, my father passed two, three years ago. I've never received a hug from him because he doesn't know how to. He, he never received a, a hug from his father. You know, so we are at a point now where we're trying to approach the world in a different way you know, and teach these things to the guys and talk about these things because 
it has affected the way the whole country thinks. Mm. Yeah. There, there was an event that actually shaped you as a young man um, in a way, and it happened on a very important day in South African history, which is the 11th of February, 1990. Can you tell us what happened in that day? Um, my, my grandmother was quite strict on the 10th of February. Well, not, it happened on the 11th, yeah. So on the 10th of February, which was the eve when Nelson Mandela uh, was coming out of jail, obviously the, the whole country was excited. There was tribulation everywhere and there was celebrations everywhere. And um, so on the 10th, the night before, I think it was about 9, 10 at night, um, a group of people were singing, you know, past my house, you know, and me and my cousins sort of like ran out to join, you know, but we knew how strict our grandmother was, so we wouldn't really go far, you know, and, but for some reason, everyone, they were like calling me, no, we need to go back home. I was like, no, I'm not, I'm not going back home. So I stayed up, you know, um, I was 14. And basically we sang, ran around the streets the whole entire night until the early hours of the morning, which is around now on the 11th, around three, four o'clock in the morning. And um, we were as a group, singing um, on the main road now, on our way to a big stadium. I think that's where the whole camping thing, because the idea was to celebrate and then go to a stadium and camp until the morning. Yeah. You know, camping meaning staying up and singing. So we were almost there and, you know, I just had these noises, you know, and screamings and quite strange noises. And um, a car, literally drove into the crowd um, and blink a few seconds later I woke up I was on the floor and um, there was chaos basically you know everyone screaming crying and realized okay we had an accident and um, about 36 people were injured and one person passed away I think that's the first person that was hit by the car, I assume. Um, and then the curse now was the people taking out the driver and literally, you know, like they, they beat the guy up, they bent his taxi and they bent him on the spot, you know. Um, so I sustained an injury. Um, and I don't think when I, I look at it today, I mean, I don't think... I was hit by the car myself. I just think uh, it was a chain reaction. I think I was pushed, you know. Um, um, so what happened, um, I sustained an injury called brachial uh, plexus, which is the damage of the nerves on my shoulder. And at the time, I mean, I thought it's just a, a fracture, you know, on my arm. And the first thing I thought of was like, my grandmother's gonna kill me. I'm not supposed to be here, you know, and someone was like, come, let's take you home. And on our way home, I'm thinking, no, we can't go home. She's really going to kill me. And we went back because then there was cars um, taking people to the hospital and they put me in one of the cars and I was taken to hospital, spent the, like the whole night there. 
And I remember waking up and seeing two of my friends that I was literally walking with and they were there. Uh, the other one was like sleeping. So it freaked me out because I thought he was dead. Like, honestly, I thought he was dead. And the other one was in like in pain. Uh, I think that's when it really hit me that this is actually, a, it was a serious accident. And then my grandmother came and I was like terrified, but she she was really concerned, you know. Uh, she stayed up and then the following morning I was sent home, which is now the morning of Mandela being out and everywhere on radio, on television. That's all you see, uh, him walking out of jail. With um, It's really great, 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 great moment for the country, you know, uh, which I had like mixed feelings because I was like an extremely, like I was, I was in pain. And um, so, yeah, that's what happened on that day for me. Uh, it just became a significant day in a different way. Yeah. yeah. Had you been... Um writing and performing music by that age and did it kind of that kind of a moment in your life did it kind of bolster you to want to keep trying um i say this all the time i think i was i was young to to take it to heart you know uh um i was young uh, i was too young for it to affect me deeply okay. you know i think if it's something that happened now I would have been so conscious you know of so many things I, I was too young and too ambitious at the time um, I had started like DJing like fooling around really my cousin had a sound system they used to do this this 21st birthday parties and beauty pageants and so I was part of his crew like literally going to the gigs and so I just I didn't stop you know um I would think about it though, like I wonder what's going to happen as I grow because I can't really, I just thought, how is it going to work? How am I going to DJ with with one hand growing up, you know, but I I was so driven. I thought we'll figure it out, we'll make it work, you know, but what I did is I really spent time practicing, you know, I'd really, I just thought, and I need to be able to master this thing more than anyone else so that one day if someone says to me, come, there's a gig, I must be ready. Yeah. What kind of music were you playing at that time? Because the, the sounds of the townships and the villages were perhaps very different to the cities. Uh, so this is like the late 90s now. Um, you're like an, a teenager and there's sounds coming out of the townships that are very particular to that moment, you know, that, that vibe. Um, and I would like to play the first video, uh, please, um, of a music video of a group. And this is from 1998. Um, and hopefully afterwards you can, you can tell us a bit about the sound and the group because this was the sound of like the townships early on. So if we could have the first video, please. Hey there, at this point in the lecture, they played some music. Unfortunately, due to copyright reasons, we can't play that here. Yeah, I'm bummed too. Anyway, uh, enough from me. Let's go back to couch wisdom. So you're going to have to help me with the pronunciation of that song title a little bit. Who was that? Um, the, the group was called TKZ. Um, the song is called Dala Mapanzula, meaning dance Mapanzula. Mapanzula is like a, 
Um, well, Ispanzula is a kind of a dance. So the people that do the dance are called Mapanzula. They were kind of like the new South Africa. Um, they were from private schools. Um, they changed everything. You know, they changed the music scene. They were very well spoken. They spoke good English. They, they were born in the townships, but didn't really grow up in the townships because um, their, their parents could afford to take them to good schools, you know. But they took the culture and modernized it. Um, they became the biggest thing in the country at that time. Um, that's the music that actually I was playing. Uh, but it was that and more. There were so many international songs uh, around the same tempo that were coming out at the time. Um, uh, we didn't really have a name for it, you know. Uh, uh, back in the day when I started DJing, you would be that DJ who could play alone, you know, the whole night where it's that kind of music, uh, which was our dance music and straight to like R&B and, um, and hip hop if you have it, you know, but you basically play everything that people want to listen to. You didn't specialize in like today, I'm like I'm a house DJ, full stop. You know, uh, it doesn't matter where I play and a hot girl comes, say, please play Britney Spears. I'm like, I'm a house DJ, <laughs> you know. Um, then you would play everything, you know, like from that, I think one of the funniest songs I remember is, that was so big in my country, so people would be dancing to that, next thing you hear, boom, 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 then you hear Barry White saying, baby. <laughs> you know, I, I, I used to find that so weird, and people would go nuts, you know, because that's exactly what the radio was playing, and so you would go from like a, dance song to a Barry White in a club, you know, um, so I'm- It sounds like a good club. Yeah, yeah. If, if they played that, that, then you know you're at the right place, you know, yeah. Well, it's interesting that you mentioned the tempo because that, uh, in like terms of aesthetic and the mood, uh, is very much like a hip hop track. Uh, but it sounds extremely like house music, but a lot slower. Can you, can you explain what is going on in that beat? Um, that's, that, that was our sound, that, that was our version of, of hip-hop music, right. you know. Kwaito, uh, that's what Kwaito is. Kwaito is like our um, movement. It became our genre that was created by South Africans, you know, and understood by South Africans. And most of the songs were like, that's a party song, you know. But some spoke about what was happening at the time. You know, uh, it became our um, new kind of hip hop in a way, what Americans did with hip hop music. Quite was our own. And that's the tempo they chose. And it was not never on a hip hop beat, it was more on a dance, but much slower to a point where we used to take records that were 45 BPM and, uh, and slow them down and play them on sorry, 45 RPM and slow them down and play them on a 33 uh, RPM and, you know, just to get that slowness and that, that groove. And it became 
like the biggest thing and uh, they used to make house music compilation called the mid tempos and that's that's what we knew we we just knew house music as that very slow sounding the minute it was fast we, we didn't connect to it you know um um so for the longest time uh, our our dance music was on that tempo like 105 if it was fast then it's 114 and that's it so 114 was too fast. Yeah. Yeah. It's too much. Yeah. I remember like, the first house music compilation that came out that became our like, classic, like our Bible. <laughs> it was a compilation called Fresh House, house Flavor Volume 1. Um, it was so fast. I remember hearing it and I thought, no, for the longest time. You know, but you play it over and over. And I think if you listen to it today, it was maybe like 120, 121, but it just sounded so weird. And everyone was like, no, this is music for white people. You know, like for the longest time. And eventually it, it just changed and became, wow, this is actually good. And the songs on that album, if you want to play a classic house song in South Africa, you that's the album to play. Mm. And one of the songs um, is by a DJ from here, actually, Nick Holder, called Summer Days. Um, it, it's in that album. And for us, that's our, if you want to play classic house music, that's where you go. We don't know anything beyond that, basically. It's so interesting that um, I'd imagine imported compilations that were sold in South Africa, that was your idea of like house music outside of South Africa and you had your own version of it through Kwaito and what would evolve out of the hip hop scene. And this is really interesting because South Africa is so huge for house music, but they don't come, doesn't come straight from the lineage of Chicago house or Detroit techno or anything. It's very much its own story, which is fascinating. Like, I think my approach after um, attending the Red Bull Music Academy changed um, because I was a DJ and uh, we had our own like collective, like a band called Shana, where I remember when I was submitting my my questionnaire to the Red Bull Music Academy, I had sent them songs from uh, from the group, and but being in a group on the side, I'm a DJ, so I wanna have an album and obviously the obvious route is to make a compilation you know but after attending the, the academy then i thought you know what i actually want to make my own music you know um I, I just felt there was a space for original house music from south africa and uh, i just wanted to break that chain and be able to reverse the cycle and be able to export the music instead of importing because a lot of money was going outside the country and it was an in thing. Everyone wanted to have a compilation album. They used to really fight over the hot singles, who's going to hear the song, who's going to um, license the song first and you know, whoever has the hottest songs become the hottest DJ. Um, so I, I sort of kind of like reversed the cycle and creating my, my own um, music my album which came out in 2005 and out of that album I started licensing my music overseas which um, was something that <clears throat> no one was doing <clears throat> and understanding the culture internationally producers I don't know now but at the time 
would work on a song, maybe in a year they would release one or two singles only. And then, you know, they stay in the circle, depending how successful their single is, they will start doing shows and, you know. And here I was from South Africa with an album. And um, then I would strip my album and license songs to different labels. So I'd license the first song to one label for like two or three months and wait and then give it to another one and then wait. And then I remember at one point, I think I had like all of my songs, like were the top six on track source, you know, and all of them became number one, depending when I was releasing them, you know, and it was kind of like freaking everyone out. like we do one song a year and there's this new guy who has six new singles and they, it's six of them on the top 10. My approach was different. And I, I, I knew that it's, I'm not from that world. I, I don't have the, the knowledge and the database the international labels have. So instead of me coming up and competing, you know, it's better to partner with them. So. I licensed all my music to all these different labels and in turn they would introduce me to the world as one of their own. You know, um, really hype and every single I release, I'm, I'm, I'm part of them, you know. Uh, and then I started getting requests for gigs depending where the label was from. You know, I did anything between labels in London, um, Germany and America and in between you know, in Paris, and that's how I built my brand, basically, um, out of licensing the same South African music that, you know, wasn't being licensed before. I'd love to talk about your music a little bit more, and I'd like to warm it up with the, the second video, please. Uh, this is a live concert, uh, and it's a person that you work very closely with, um, and I'd like people to get a sense of the importance of the music and the people that were being able to see it at the time. So if we could have the second video, please. <laughs> Tell you off. Um. Right, so you're growing up, um, you're becoming a teenager, you're DJing, you're playing quite music, hip hop, like imported house. Why go to a jazz record from the mid 70s for some of your first ideas of music? Um, I was sitting in my room and producing music. Uh, I think it was 2004. This is after I'd been to the Red Bull Music Academy and had met Hugh Masekela at the Music Academy uh, for the first time. And, uh, and I was working. I used to have this uh, iMac computer with, um, um, I had this broken headphone. I had to literally hold one ear like like this when I was making music and I was working on something else and I saw this same particular video on TV, on late night television and I stopped whatever I was doing and started a new project. While the song was playing on TV, I was trying to figure out the key of the song. Uh, while it was playing on TV, I, I got the key of the song. Um, by the time it ended, I was, I was done with it. And then I started working on that song in particular as a remix. And I didn't know how I was going to find Huma Segala to even start a conversation of remixing this song. I didn't even know if it was, he was going to allow that to happen. But 
it captured me so much. And that song, by the way, is is breaking down the, the same story we were just talking about. It talks it talks about the train that picks up the mine workers. And the last line he said there before it was stop is uh, in 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 Hossa uh, it says Sila Inula and Gomboni, meaning we um Inula is a Inula is a word they used for the kind of food, terrible food they were eating in the mines, you know, and he says that in the song, like, but the whole story is they're going to the mines, it's people from all these countries to go work for their kids. That's the old South Africa. That's how the system was. You, your job as a man, you, you, if you, a hard-working man, that's where you end up. You get on the train, you go to the mines, you live there, you leave your family behind. You see them once a year, you send money in between. and So that, that song is about that story we we're just talking about. and um, It touched me then, like the same way it just did now when it played. It's quite an emotional song. and So I did the remix before even speaking to him. Uh, the following weekend, I was playing the song as an instrumental and telling everyone who listened that this is going to be a remix for you, Masekela. And it didn't make sense because it was just an instrumental. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I, I, I took it to this, this guy who ended up being like, he's my bigger brother. Now he's like my mentor. His name is Oskido. Oskido is one of the guys who got into the industry quite early. Um, his story is, he used to sell, uh, in a way that everyone can understand, he used to sell hot dogs outside a club, a nightclub. And, you know, when people come out of the club and they're hungry, they would buy hot dogs from him. So when he was done, he would go into the club. And one day the DJ didn't pitch. And the guy from the club was like, the DJ didn't, can you play? Do you know how to play music? And he was like, yeah. And that's how we started being a DJ, literally. And from there, he he built an empire, you know, um, started their own first record label, signed their first artist. They used to sell music from the, the, the car because no record company wanted to sign that music. Yeah, Kwaito was was like hip hop. It was kind of like, um, not violent, but they didn't believe in it so much, you know, so they started selling it from the, from their cars and he literally was in the beginning of South African music industries. He knew everyone, you know, and I'd taken my album to him so that it could be licensed to his label. And I told him I have this song that I wish to feature Brea Hugh and, 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 and. So he spoke to him and it was approved. So that's how it got on the album, yeah. I think we should listen to your remix. Uh, I think we should do that. Sounds <sighs> good. No, and it's, it's interesting to think of how, how you turn a jazz record from the 70s into your own music uh, along this kind of South African house flavor. So this is what we're going to do. I'm nervous. Are you nervous? I'm, yeah, oh, I want to make nervous. a disclaimer. <laughs> so I, I produced this this um, using, uh, like I said, I had this small iMac computer. I didn't, I produced the whole album using a mouse, literally. I'd, like, I'd write down the chords 
I'd sing the bass line with my mouth and then literally write them down on a, with the mouse. And I had no keyboard uh, to play uh, when I made this album. So if it doesn't sound so great, just remember that. <laughs> okay, well, this is um, Stimela, and also Stimela means train, yeah. uh, quite literally, right? So, like, the emotional importance of this just being called Stimela, it's so, it's heavy, it's real. Okay, here we go. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Now, um, I think the speakers whoop. are quite good. They're actually even louder out there. I was just <laughs> making sure we don't blow everyone's ears off with the, the train sound. Um, so you were saying that what I find so interesting about your music is that you draw from live instrumentation. Like you're inspired by a figure like Huma Sakela, playing like live jazz. Uh, you studied jazz as well. And you're making house music with very few um, instruments or even just like equipment for a while. Um, so how exactly did you make that? Was that was that sampled directly from the original? Like, how were you working it out? Um, that's a very old song. So you saw in the video, uh, Huma Segala was very young when he did that. So um, I literally had to use that recording. The live recording? Yeah, right. I had to use that recording, but it I issued it so much. You know, I didn't get the separates to to do the remix, like uh, separate vocals or, you know, I, I had to eat you what was there. And um, I tried capturing the emotion of the train on the drums as well. You know, um, to me, that's how, that's how a train sounds. Like if you listen to the rhythm of, of the, the, the remix, it, it suggests the train movement. Um, basically, I wanted to make sure that he doesn't say no when he hears the song, you know, because uh, before there was no official humor Segular remix, you know, it's like Shade, Shade doesn't let anyone remix. But if I were to get an opportunity, I'd, I'd do like 10 different versions of one song so that he, she doesn't have to get a chance to say no. So it was one of those things where I, I was like, I have to get this thing right. I have to capture him. And he has no knowledge um, or rather had no knowledge of what house music is. And um, I, I, I wanted him to just hear music, you know, and, and approve it and, and it worked. Mm. Yeah. It did actually work, didn't it? Because you ended up working together. We worked together and uh, on a different song and I uh, was doing an, my album called Homebrewed and one of my dreams now was to do a song with him, like an original song. and. So I had been speaking to his manager for the longest time and he said, okay, cool, confirmed. He's gonna come to your house. I think it was a Tuesday and said this on Monday morning and I freaked out because I had nothing. And he said to me, he only has an hour and a half. Um, they're giving him a, like a doctorate, some universities honoring him. So he doesn't have time. and. Usually, how I work is, I'm quite fast, but an hour and a half is like a bit too short. So I thought we will hang out and I'll play something and then he'll say no, yes, no. And now this guy says to me, he, he has an hour and a half. And I said to him, he's interested in writing a song, perhaps he says no. He, just, he wants to come in, sing and go. And so I had a day to really start this song 
and I had no one to call to write the song. You know, I, I, I kind of like believe I am a songwriter, but not for Brayu, not, not for him. So um, I was stuck and I decided, okay, it's fine. Let me just lock myself up and, and, and do something. So I, I did, and I literally stayed up the whole night. I called uh, this guy um, who usually play uh, piano on my songs, Johan, to come. And I played him an instrumental, I said to him, please play a solo. Let's just do this song and finish it before he gets here. And um, that's what we did. And when he, he got there, all he had to do was to just play a solo and sing the, the verse. And I played him the song and he was like, what music is this? And I, I said, this is house music. And he laughed at me. He's like, so he said, it's house like a home, like a... I said, yeah. yeah. And jokingly he said, so if there's house, is there garage? <laughs> <laughs> And I was like, well, <laughs> actually, <laughs> you know, um, so we did the song and, and Josh had said to me, listen, Brahu is not interested in, you know, uh, the technical side, the ownership. He wants a fee. And obviously, Tim, this is just a, a guy who had remixed his songs who I'm just doing like a quick thing. He wants his fee, he's gonna sing what you say, he must sing, play a solo and go. I said, cool. And then that's exactly what happened. He came in, I told him what I've written, sang it to him, he sang it. Uh, even the chorus, I sort of like sang it myself as a guide, which I'm, I'm not a good singer, I just wanted it to be ready. And he recorded, he left, and it was just me and him in the studio. He left and then like within five minutes, I get a call from Josh. Josh says, oh, thank you, man. Thank you for keeping the time. But he was quite happy. And um, so let's talk about publishing. I said, but <laughs> you said he's not interested. You know, he says, yeah, no, he's changed his mind. <laughs> and, and that's how I knew I have a good song. I was like, okay, cool. This house thing is a good house, a good home. Wanted a piece of the house. Yeah, yes, yeah. And obviously, I mean, because it's it's humor, Segela. I couldn't like write a song about being in the club and you know uh, turning up with some hot girls, you know. So. Um, uh, because it's him, I wanted something quite meaningful and like a message he could pass. And so I, I wrote a song called "Called We Are One." I wish actually we had like preloaded a music video. Um, um, and it, that song beca <clears throat> became so significant um, in a way um, because it, it carries such a big message. Mm -hmm. And there's a times where there was like big fights in my country, uh, xenophobia um, uh, fights, and it has been used there a lot uh, um, as a message, you know, to say we are one and, you know, stop the, the dividing, stop the fighting, and, you know, it has become such a significant song. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. I love this this work that you've done with Hugh Masakela through his own music for a remix and collaborating together because it draws this lovely line of how 
you as like a house a house music producer is also deeply invested in things like live performance, collaborating with vocalists and musicians, and this is something that has really evolved with South African house very deeply. Um, can you speak about that collaborative effort and how you work with live musicians who, like you, Masakela, has got no idea what house music is? How do you translate that kind of spirit? Um... <sighs> I think it's one of my strongest things, you know, and I've learned that from an early age. I think secretly I'm this great singer, you know, like in my dreams, like I sing very well. And yeah, if, if it was for me, I'd sing in all my songs. So um, I, I, I find it very important to do songs with singers. You know, I, I love collaborating with singers. So I'm always on the lookout for someone, whether new or uh, known or unknown. I'm, I'm always looking for, I work more with, with texture, you know, than names. And in, in all the music that I try to create, I'm always collaborating with different people. And it's something that I think <clears throat> I've, I've grown to understand more. And working with with uh, Huma Segela was such an important thing. And doing a song called "We Are One" with him, where for the first time I I sang on a record that I produced. But in the end, my son at the time he was uh, I think uh, eleven uh, sang as well the same chorus uh, with his little voice saying "We Are One" and. This song was licensed by Louis Vega. And when Louis Vega did the remix, because I explained to him the story, I said, there's, there's three generations on this song. There's Huma Segala, there's myself, there's my son. So when, when Louis Vega did the remix, on the remix, he put his son on, and he put his wife on, and his whole entire band Thanks. on the remix as well. So it just became this much bigger story. Uh, of uh, it, it was a, um, a three-generation story from South Africa to another three-generation story in in New York, and he he had um, uh, Josh Milan singing the chorus, uh, Anane Vega singing the chorus, uh, Luisito Quintero playing the drums. It just became something much more bigger, you know. Uh, but that's for me a dream. I I love doing such. Uh, I, I believe I'm on the house music side, but I, I believe whilst, whilst I'm there, I can bring so much more, you know? So I try and strike the balance between making sure the songs remain house music, but also become musical at the same time. Mm, yeah. Actually, that might be a really good point to play our third video, please, because this is the ultimate kind of expression of that. And this is from 2012. And this is something that... Which one is that? Oh, we're going to find out. Uh, if we could have the last video, please. There's a lot within that. It's fascinating. Can you tell us where that concert was, what it was for, and and what role you played in it? Um, that concert was in Durban, uh, my hometown. Uh, it was in 2012. Um, we called it Africa Rising. Um, Africa Rising is a project that I 
started with a good friend of mine, Glenn. Uh, Glenn is in music, sorry, he's in um, um, film and TV production. And we just sat down one day and we were talking about how we can stage house music better, you know? And I said to him, I've always had this dream of playing with an orchestra, you know? Um, and he, he's the first person to say to me, we can do it, you know? Um, so we started literally just planning it and uh, started working on the music. Uh, so it's a two hour um, show. Um, the whole show is, is um, that kind of an energy, literally. I'm bringing all the singers, or almost all the singers that I've worked with. Um, uh, they come on and perform the songs that we've collaborated on. Um, and that song is called Someday, you know. And for me, <clears throat> from calling the show Africa Rising, you know, I, I believe music in my country can play a very big role um, in motivating the people and stirring them into the right direction. That is why I, we did that song with Zano called Someday. It's a very motivational song. So I'm trying as much as I can to quietly inspire. You know, while you dance, there must be substance in the music. Not that I'm forever going to be this preacher guy who says everything is possible and, you know, but every now and then, my country still needs those messages, um, um, that encouraging uh, kind of message. On, on, on every album I do, I make sure uh, I touch on that because I, I believe it's quite an important uh, role to play in my country. Yeah. So how does a, a kid that doesn't have a keyboard and a broken headphone and all that kind of thing, how does he end up working with an orchestra? What's the, as a house music producer, did you walk into an orchestra and they, they were like, what's this? Like, I'm, I'm crazy. <laughs> okay. No, like literally, like the, the guys that work with me know, um, we hardly speak on the phone. There's a guy, his name is Amaru. He, he runs my office in South Africa. And we hardly make voice calls we on Insta, uh, sorry whatsapp anything he needs anything i need we always chat but when he receives my call he knows oh shit <laughs> what now <laughs> you know and especially after long trips <clears throat> and then there's another one called lionel who's, who's in new york and uh, who's also part of the team so after long trips and when they receive a call from me they sit down you know because i always have these ideas and you know, it could be, like I was working on an album recently and um, so we're busy, almost done with it, talking about sleeve designs and I, I call and I'm like, are you ready to talk? He's like, yeah. I'm like, I want to do a movie. <laughs> it's like, okay, okay, I'm listening. <laughs> but that's me. Like, I, I'm always um, looking for ways to grow. You know, and I broke it down to him. I said, you know, like my latest album, Pieces of Me, when, when I listen to it, some of the songs sound like um, they could be in a movie. So what I want to do is I want to do a 12 minutes movie where I put my own songs on the movie, you know, uh, in a way it's showcasing the music, you know. He's like, who's going to write the movie? I said, I have it written. 
on the flight. I wrote the whole story. It's ready. Who's going to act on the movie? I said, we, it's going to be uh, an animation movie. So your job is to find an animator and send them my story. And that's it. You know, I'm almost done with the uh, music. The movie's done. Um, there's a Red Bull uh, music film festival coming in, Cape, in Johannesburg, uh, end of October. We're going to show that movie. So I'm like that. I'm... I'm I'm never comfortable. You know, I'm always looking for ways to to close the gap. You know, uh, find a different approach to to things. And you know, I want to take house music to a, a a level that has never been before with different approach. You know, um, and I've said this. I've been saying this. And you know, I want to be that guy who makes a song with Beyonce but it remains house music, you know, uh, without changing who I am and what I've been doing, you know, um, that's my ultimate goal. And <laughs> back in the day, in, in 2003, I did an interview while I was a participant in Cape Town and they were interviewing us. And so this lady was like, so where, where do you see yourself in, in three years? You know, and I said to her, um, three years is, is too close. Uh, just say five years. In five years, I'm going to be one of the most important producers of this country. And then I choked after saying that, and I thought, why would you say that? You know, like, but that was the truth. It came out because I'm that guy who I'm never comfortable, you know, um, with the stuff that I, um, I'm doing. You know, I, I always want to get better. I'm always willing to learn. And funny enough, before I took this trip, I found the notebook that they gave us uh, in Cape Town, the Red Bull Music Academy notebook. And what I wrote on the cover is that I am here to learn. That's the first thing I wrote before I started attending all the classes. And, and that's me. I'm, I, I never walk in a room knowing. I'm always walking in the room to learn. And so I'm forever learning and I'm forever pushing the envelope. You know, so that's where that orchestra idea comes from. And we've done more crazier things. I mean, we've done a show where we pre-recorded the orchestra um, and then we did a show where the orchestra was only on the screens and I was playing. The conductor was conducting the screens and this is a house music show. You know, um, we're not just about a club. Um, we are about how do we repackage this thing? and make it look amazing at the same time, keeping the culture, yeah. I think uh, always learning and keeping the culture seems to encapsulate what you do as an artist. And, um, and so thank you very much, Black Coffee, for speaking to us. Thank you, thank you. Hey, this is Todd Burns again. Thanks for listening to Couch Wisdom. Before you go, I just wanted to take a moment to tell you a bit about the Red Bull Music Academy. The whole thing is a world-traveling series of music workshops and events. If you want to find out more, check us out at redbullmusicacademy.com. Also, if you liked what you heard on this podcast and you're not already subscribed, please go for it and consider rating us while you're at it. It really helps other people discover the podcast. Finally, there's a whole other world of great music programming like this to check out at redbullradio.com.
Okay, enough URLs for now. Thanks for listening.